free people will never remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Grace Calloway and past the ammunition. Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James. All right, back here we are, back in dreary, rainy, cold Arkansas. <laughs> but at least I'm not sick. This is very good. I can breathe clearly. I'm regaining my sharp-wittedness. I need to take more brain food, though. I know that. Uh, my uh, memory is not quite up to snuff like it used to be, so I need to get it back. Maybe I need to t- drink more sangria. <laughs> but here we go. This is part three of A History of Monetary Crimes. The story of Barbara Villiers and the first four chapters we talked about. Hold on. Something obscuring my... I need to increase the size of the type here. I thought I had it increased already, but when I went back to the page, it went back to its original size. Anyway, Chapter 5, and the full title of the book is Barbara Villiers, A History of Monetary Crimes. And... Chapter 5 now begins with the story of Barbara Villiers, prostitute to King Charles II. And we've been talking a lot about this, how the international banksters require the services of prostitutes to blackmail persons of interest, put it that way, to blackmail politicians, cardinals, (laughs) popes, you name it, people who are easily compromised by prostitutes or by, let's say, they're homosexuals, and you take a photograph of um, a pope having a homosexual affair with a bishop, that sort of thing, that will enable you to blackmail all of these high-ranking officials. And boy, don't we have a lot of blackmail. Virtually our entire government today has been blackmailed by the international Jew, no doubt about it. So here we go. Barbara Villiers, prostitute of prostitutes. We now come to the intrigue which was set afoot to remove this restriction and to deprive the crown of its seigniorage upon coins, but which, as it happened, had the far more important and lasting effect to substantially deprive the state of its control over the measure of value. What's seigniorage? Seigniorage is the profit that a government makes, or the issuer of coinage makes, is the difference between the cost of producing the coins, let's say, and the face value of the coin. So let's say a silver dollar costs two pennies to to make, right? But then, so you make 98 98 cents profit, okay? That's seniorage. It's usually not that uh, great, but that's an example of it. So you can see... Why the banksters, the Rothschild? Well, this is not. This is before the Rothschilds. 
We're talking about Jewish bankers from Holland who, first of all, financed Oliver Cromwell to behead Charles I and to create a revolution which uh, created Charles II coming to the crown and then how he, Charles II, was compromised by the Jewish banksters. Uh, really quick happening stuff. Major turmoil in England at this point in time. Okay, The Bank of England being formed in the year 1694. So the state, as Alexander Delmar very accurately argues, is that the government is supposed to issue the money and regulate the value thereof. Unfortunately, that isn't the case anymore. Even though the state may print the money or coin it, it's put into circulation not by the government, but by banksters. And the way it works with the Federal Reserve Board, because it's not really a bank, it's not federal, there's no reserves, and there's no bank. They don't lend money into circulation like a regular bank does. They just pass it out. Actually, in effect, spend it into circulation. And they make an immediate profit because all they pay the government, the treasury, is the cost of printing the, the paper money, right? That's a, So it's a, if you got a $1,000 bill and it costs two cents to print, man, that is some serious profit, folks. That's how easy it is. Who says you can't make something out of nothing? Okay, this intrigue began directly after Blondeau was employed by Charles II and had put his coining machines to work in the tower. Its inceptors were the goldsmiths, the banksters, the Jew banksters of Lombard Street. Its instrument was a woman. <laughs> okay. Barbara, the only child of William, Viscount of Grandison, was born in Ireland in 1640, and at the age of 16, being already famous for her extreme beauty and vivacity, was married to Sir Edward Villiers, who died in the following year. So she was only 17 years old when her husband died. A widow at 17. How about that? After the prescribed interval of mourning, the young, what was that, two, two weeks? <laughs> the, the young woman married the richer Roger Palmer, who in 1661, that is to say a year after Barbara had become the king's mistress, the king's mysterious, was, award, oh, was rewarded rather for his complacence with the title of the Earl of Castlemaine. Okay, so if I can use the services of your beautiful and vivacious wife, I will grant you a royal title. The Earl of Castlemaine. You see how easy that was <laughs> to become an earl? Okay. No wonder the people were fed up with royalty. Pepys, that's P-E-P-Y-S, tersely describes Barbara as, quote, a pretty woman, her husband a cuckold, and says that she turned papist not for conscience sake, but to please the king. He adds that the news of her conversion, quote-unquote, in 1663 was carried to Bishop Stillingfleet, 
by William Penn, the Quaker. The relations between the king and Barbara Villiers, then Mrs. Palmer, began on the very first day of the Restoration, May 21st, 1660. The woman was both depraved and sordid, and she seized upon every occasion to augment her power and fill her purse. I guess once you resolve to become a prostitute, that's all you live for. She afterwards had or was reproached with having had intrigues with Mr. Rowley, Lord Chesterfield, Mr. Churchill, (laughs) the granddaddy of the Churchill, you know who, Harry German, that is Lord, that's spelled J-E-R-M-A-N, not G-E-R-M, sorry, I misspelled it, J-E-R-M-I-N, not G-E-R-M-A-N, Lord Dover, Charles Hart, Jacob Hall, fleshly, fleshy will of Market Clare, unquote, Mr. Goodman, Robert Bow Fielding, Robert Fielding? Really? Ralph, Duke of Montague, the Viscount Chatelain, and others. That list is long enough, folks. Defoe afterwards maliciously. I told you this uh, this book would get more interesting as we can. T- oh, this from the Library of the University of Illinois. Now wait a minute. Wait a minute here. Uh, looks like a page might be missing. Let me flip back. We've got page 26. Oh, then there's a photograph. Okay, because this is an old book. And the pagination, I see what's going on here. The page that the photograph is on is not given page numbers, so we're good. So, remark that Charles II had by his own efforts contributed four dukes to the peerage, alluding by this to the dukes of Grafton, Richmond, St. Albans, and Buclay. But if the stories of Barber's numerous intrigues had any foundation in fact, Defoe missed his mark by shooting too low. With Barbara's subsequent marriage to and divorce from Fielding in 1705-7, this treatise has no concern. Evelyn, I think he's only concerned with uh, Barbara's uh, intrigues on behalf of the Bank of England. Evelyn described her as a lady of pleasure and the curse of our nation. Un- Could a woman really be that bad? Pepys alludes to her as a burden and reproach to the country. Clarendon said she would sell everything in the kingdom. She was supported by a vile fiction, which included the Duke of Buckingham, Lord Ashley, Lord Arlington, Sir William Bennett, Sir William Coventry, and many others, five of whom afterwards constituted the notorious Cabal Ministry of 1670. So what was the big lie? that they were all a part of. My interest is piqued. Three months after her relations began with the king, to wit, on the 20th of August, 1660, she was granted by letters patent a mortgage upon or pension from the mint of two pence by tail out of every pound weight troy of silver money which should thenceforth be coined by virtue of any warrant or indentured made 
and to be made by his majesty, his heirs and successors from the 9th of August, 1660, for 21 years. Now that's seniorage. <laughs> that is seniorage. So she got two pence out of every pound. Man, that is a pension and a half. By letters patent dated 19 January 1664, she was granted 4,700 pounds a year out of the post office revenues. Boy, this is graft and corruption. Besides these, I told you she was a high-ranking prostitute. Besides these, she had several other pensions and was concerned in the promotion of numerous grants, monopolies, benefices, and other sources of revenue. She won 25,000 pounds on cards in a single night. This is big money in those days, folks. The inflation rate, what is a pound... What can a pound buy today? Nothing. <laughs> she lost She lost 15,000 pounds and would play for 1,000 pounds to 1,500 pounds upon the single cast of a die. On one occasion, the king paid 30,000 pounds to clear her debts. Man, I wish I could have a, a sugar daddy <laughs> or sugar, sugar mommy to clear my debts. Let me live like a, a royal king. The movement which culminated in the Coinage Act of 1666. Oh, there's a good date. 1666. Though it apparently originated with the East India Company, had long been supported by the landlord class, whose interest had caused them to view with alarm the influx of the precious metals from America, which began with Potosi. That Potosi is, uh, I forget which country that's from, Chile, I believe. A South American country. It's a silver mine in South America. According to Brantome, the fears of the French landlords from this source had amounted almost to frenzy. The Marquis de Tavernes even proposed to demonetize. Hold on, I have to turn the page. Demonetize both the precious metals and employ in their stead coins made of iron. You think people would ex- exchange a silver coin for iron to, if they're both stated to be one dollar? <laughs> I don't think so, folks. <laughs> they, if the government forced them to do it, yeah. Both the precious metals, and I, I guess iron in those days was more precious than it is today, and employ in their stead coins made of iron. In other words, some of some substance that capital could control. Pending this proposal, the creditor class in France tried to exact payment in ECUS, E-C-U-S, and other special kinds of coins, or ECUs, ECUs, I guess it is. Uh, Don't we have the European Union? (laughs) Is that the coin they're using? Which they hope to render scarce by limiting or obstructing their coinage. Again, this is what the bankers always do. They will issue a currency or in this case, coinage, and pronounce it having such and such a value, but by making it scarce, it becomes even more valuable. This is this is what happens when you give the power to issue and circulate money to 
the banksters. As the big daddy of the clan has stated many times, well, actually, he only stated it once, give me the power to issue a nation's currency, and I care not who makes its laws. Why? Because if you can issue a nation's currency, you will be the most powerful person on the planet. Okay? <laughs> lots lots of ginkgo. Lots of ginkgo going on in England at this time, folks. All right? Yeah, you can... Yeah, the government can make anything the coin of the realm or, you know, what's, what's the term? Uh, it's not species. Species means precious metals. Coins made of precious metals. But uh, currency, whatever currency, whatever, you know, Lincoln created the greenback dollar. It was just a fiat money. had no intrinsic value. The government can make something valuable by edict. And Hitler did the same thing in Germany. But in both cases, Hitler and Lincoln got the country out from under the control of the international banksters. You got to do what you got to do. So, okay, which they hope to render scarce. But this plan was defeated by Henry II, who in a public ordinance dated 1551 threatened with death anyone who should attempt to thus defeat the beneficent influence of an increase of money. Now, it's always good to have a lot of money because that facilitates trade. It's best if that money is specie because it can't be inflated. Whereas paper money can be easily inflated and thereby lose its value. So let's continue. The English nobles, more fruitful in financial resource than their French compeers, devised another plan to check the rise of prices. This was to obtain permission directly or indirectly to melt the coins of the realm into plate, to export it to the antipodes, to get rid of it in some way or another, and thus contract a measure of value. All that was needed was a repeal of the statute against exporting and melting. A movement of this character was made, as previously stated, in the reign of Charles I, about the year 1639. The establishment of the Commonwealth postponed the accomplishment of the design, but no sooner did the restoration occur, that is, the restoration of the crown after Cromwell, did the restoration occur, then it was again taken up and pursued through the agency of the East India Company and Barbara Villiers. So you might say, Barbara Villiers was in fact the chief procurer, <laughs> the chief procurer of the royalty of England on behalf of the Bank of England, folks. Didn't I tell you the prostitution and banking go hand in hand? as do blackmail and assassination and war-making, war-mongering. Let's continue. Chapter 6, the cattle and the coinage bill. So, now, the reason why this book is so great is it reveals the intrigues that go into the creation of a national bank. Most people think, oh, well, the bankers are, you know, they're a necessary part of the economy. No, they are not. We don't need no stinking bank bankers, especially Jewish banksters. The government is supposed to issue currency into circulation. And through the taxes collected upon trade, upon commerce, 
the government therefore gets a cut back of the money they issue in circulation. At the same time, the economy flourishes because now they've got money to work with. What do you think happened after the crash of 29? The Rothschilds, through the Federal Reserve, removed money from circulation. Nobody had any money to buy anything. Therefore, the crash of 1929. And FDR, who was nothing but a banker's pawn, might as well call him Charles II, took gold away from the people and gave it to the British banksters. The object of the East India Company, their backers and the landlords of England, their colleagues, the goldsmiths of London, we're talking Jews here, folks, and their agents in Parliament. Doesn't that sound like America today? Federal Reserve Bank and so-called Congress? Assisted by the Countess of Castlemaine's faction. So, prostitutes have a faction? Yeah, to blackmail Congress. That's what they're used for. If if Washington, D.C. were moved to Las Vegas, you wouldn't have any more prostitutes there than you do in Washington. Was first to remove the restriction upon the exportation of coins and bullion. Second, to get rid of the state seniorage upon the coins. In other words, the state won't make any money off the coins to state issues. And third, to usurp the prerogative of coinage for themselves. Now there's the bottom line, folks to usurp the prerogative of coinage for themselves. We're talking about the Jew banksters who created the Bank of England. These objects they accomplished by means of separate measures. And here it is to be noticed that the Mint Laws of 1816 and 1870 in England and of 1873 in the United States of America were likewise altered by means of separate measures. By this device, the extent and importance of the alteration escaped attention. Okay, so the bankers are always sly about how they monopolize the issuance of currency. Number one, the first measure of 1663 was entitled, quote, an act for the encouragement of trade, unquote. It provided that between the 1st of July and the 20th of December in any year, All cattle imported from Ireland, Wales, or Scotland into England shall pay a duty of 20 shillings per head. Now, do you see a problem here? So all cattle imported between the 1st of July and the 20th of December will have a surcharge of 20 shillings per head. Do you think that there's going to be a downturn of cattle coming from those places? During those months, I'll bet business is booming the rest of the year. And it repealed the various provisions that had theretofore been enacted forbidding the export of coin or bullion from the kingdom. So what's the price of cattle got to do with the exporting of coin and bullion? I mean, two completely unrelated, you know, and this is how Congress works. They say, oh, well, yeah. The uh, head tax, which is illegal here in America, but it was pushed by the banksters so that the federal government can tax us directly. The Constitution says, no, 
the people are to be taxed by their separate states, not by the federal government. So the income tax of America is totally unconstitutional, totally illegal. But, and that was under Woodrow Wilson, he was a really horrible president. The patriotic pretext for the first provision was that Irish and Scotch cattle already fattened were imported into England to the injury of English landlords, who were thus deprived of the means of letting their pastures to advantage. Uh, so, in other words, it's always for, for somebody's benefit. <laughs> I, don't understand, I don't understand how this benefited the English landlords, but it says it did. The pretext for the second provision was that trade generally has was hindered by the restriction on the export of coin. Uh, well, yeah, because the Jews wanted that coin to make trade. And if they're capable of coining coin, then then they, they make double the profit by creating the coin and then using it to buy stuff. It's like, uh, it's like counterfeiting real coin. On July 21st, 1663, the bill, having passed through the commons, apparently without debate, and being then, it's just like it's done here in America. Whenever the banks want a bill, it passes without debate. And being then on its third reading of in the Lords, a protest against its enactment was signed by the Earl of Anglesey for himself and others and delivered to the commons. Among other objections, the Earl of Anglesey urged the following. Turning the page here. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, wait a minute. Now I do believe. Oh, hold on. I went the wrong way. I went the wrong way. There appearing already a great want of money in His Majesty's dominions, and almost all the gold of His Majesty's stamp gone, notwithstanding the restraint made by law, it must necessarily follow by this free exportation to be even more depleted. Okay. Well, do you think Jewish banksters give a damn about the people of England or Scotland or Wales or Ireland? No, this is only for their benefit to deprive the people of coinage and, if necessary, give them worthless paper money. The history of the universe is worthless paper money being exchanged for gold and silver by the banksters. Okay. It must necessarily follow by this free exportation, the balance of trade being against us, that our silver will also be carried away into foreign parts and all free trade, or uh, and all trade, rather, fail for the want of money, which is the measure of it. Okay, so in other words, if all this coin is being exported out of our, out of our country for purchases, private purchases made by banksters, what are we going to left, be left with? What are we Englishmen going to be left with? It trenches highly upon the king's prerogative, he being by law the only exchanger of money. Yeah, the government is supposed to re- issue the currency and regulate the value thereof. Now you understand why that provision is in our Constitution. And his interests, as equal to command that, as to command the militia of the kingdom. All right? So it's his. it's in his power to do that. And he should have that power, and it should not be delegated to some Jew bankster. 
and the militia of the kingdom which cannot subsist without it. You got to pay the troops. And it is dangerous to the peace of the kingdom when it shall be in the power of half a dozen or half a score of rich, discontented, or factious persons to make a bank, meaning an accumulation of our coin and bullion, beyond the seas for any mischief. This meant India. And leave us in want of money when it shall not be in the king's power to prevent it. This is exactly what the creation of the Federal Reserve Board did in our country. It gave the power to rule over us with our money. This liberty being given by a law, nor to keep his mitt going because money will yield more from that than that, the mitt, uh, because a law of so great change and threatening so much danger is made perpetual and not probationary. And there were plenty of legislators in our country who argued against the creation of the Federal Reserve Bank. But, of course, Woodrow Wilson signed it. This nobleman, whose earnest patriotism appears in all his writings and public actions, clearly perceived what the intriguants were deriving at, and plainly pointed out the unconstitutionality and mischievous effects of their bill, but without avail. There was no power to which appeal could be made. So this tells you that the banksters had clout. Where did this cloud come from? Blackmail. Hold on one second. The king was a voluptuary, a profligate, the prey of panderers and parasites. What, what do you think Biden is? What do you think Trump is? The commons were in the pockets of the East India Company. And the lords were, many of them, suitors at the palace for the forfeited estates, titles, benefices, monopolies, and privileges which the king squandered or his favorites offered for sale. Our country is for sale to the highest bidder. The corrupt character of the cattle and coinage bill is indicated by the indecent haste and urgency which were manifested in the lords to pass it. The Duke of Buckingham, a relative of Barbara Villiers, oh no, he said her whole family's in on it, who usually did not rise until 11 o'clock in the morning, was now, and probably drunk by through the afternoon, was now at his post at the opening of each session and remained to the last. Quote, and it grew quickly evident that there were other reasons which caused so earnest a prosecution of it above the encouragement of the breed of cattle in England, insomuch as Lord Ashley, who, next to the Duke of Buckingham, appeared to be the most violent supporter of the bill, could not forbear to urge it as an argument for the prosecuting of it, that if this bill did not pass, all the rents in Ireland would rise, unquote. Of course, it's a blatant lie. It's not going to prevent them from settling the cattle. It's just... But at least a certain months of the year, but it would curtail the sale of cattle if you have to play a, pay a 20 pence head tax. 
The whole debate upon the bill was so disorderly and unparliamentary that the like had never been before. No rules or orders of the House for the course and method of the debate were observed. The members of the corrupt faction spoke out of their turn and more often than they had a right to speak, and this gave rise to many violent scenes. This is what happens when bankers start to corrupt your country. In fine, there grew so, so great a license of words in this debate and so many personal reflections that every day some quarrels arose to the great scandal and dishonor of a court that was the supreme judiciary of the kingdom. Quote, Buckingham was challenged to mortal combat by Lord Ossery, and after escaping this danger by skulking the meeting and charging his opponents in the house with having delivered an unlawful challenge to him, was assaulted with blows by the indignant Marquis of Dorchester. <laughs> okay. All right. That sounds like just what happened to in America before the Civil War, which was precipitated by Jews, Jew bankers also. In spite of all this and of many conferences between the Lords and Commons, whose obstinacy refused all accommodation or compromise, the bill was passed after, quote, Berwick on Tweed, was substituted for Scotland, and the word foreign was prefixed to coin and bullion. This measure appears in the statute book as the 15 Charles II, C7. The preamble to the coinage provision is in the following words, paragraph 12. Whereas, several considerable and advantageous trades cannot be conveniently driven and carried on without the species of money or bullion, and that it is found by experience that they are carried in greatest abundance as to the common market to such places to give free liberty for exporting the same, and the better to keep and increase the current coins of this kingdom. Therefore, let us resolve to let them freely go out. But the objecting nobleman said, if we allow this money to escape England, we won't have any money left. Which arguments makes the most sense to you? In other words, after August 1st, 1663, leave is given to export all foreign coins or bullion of gold or silver, free of interdict, regulation, or duties of any kind. In other words, the banksters are free to spend the, nation of, uh, the coin of the realm as they please in any foreign market. Now, how is England going to profit from this loss of coin they can't because they lost their seniorage another preamble occurs in paragraph 5 to the effect that in order to keep the colonies in America and elsewhere in firmer dependence upon England be it enacted in paragraph subparagraph okay paragraphs 6 to 11 that henceforth all trade to and from such colonies may be conducted only in British ships. Belonging, of course, though this is not mentioned in the Act, to the East India Company. So here you see the beginning of the term crown, which used to refer to the king or queen. Today is now a, a, a reference to the banksters inside the city of London. They are the true crown. And it began with the East India Company, a Jewish corporation. Or their co-agitators, or coadjutors, 
who sought, promoted, or assisted in the enactment of these mischievous measures. You can, you can be sure that whenever a banker proposes legislation, it's going to be beneficial to the banker, not to the people. And yet, we live in a country, we live in a world where nobody knows anything about money. In every instance, whether the legislation related to the fattening of cattle or the export of coin or the colonial trade, patriotic reasons were alleged as the motive, as they always are. In every instance, the real motive was a corrupt and selfish one. The export of coin was solely for the benefit of the East India Company, whose active member and clever apologist was Sir Josiah Child. And I'm sure he was not a Jew, but he was an agent for a Jewish corporation, the East India Company. This arch-intriguant succeeded in getting many of his co-partners, now numbering 556, whoa, in the commons. And as we shall presently see, he kept a guilty hold upon them and others. How did he do that? The Irish Cattle Clause was a palpable bribe to the English landed interest in the House of Lords. Okay, there we go. Because I guess they're the ones, they're the recipients of the bribe. Whilst the Colonial Clause prevented the Americans from participating in the Oriental trade, and at the same time sufficed to appease those British shipowners who did not enjoy the advantage of being shareholders in the East India Company. Okay? So, the intrigues are gross. The moral status of Parliament at this period may be gathered from the fact that on July 27, 1663, a bill for the better observance of the Sabbath probably closing the public houses and restricting the liquor traffic. Oh, the blue laws. (laughs) The blue laws in England. Which which bill had been enacted and was ready for the royal assent was, quote, lost off the table of the House of Lords, unquote. And on May, that's like $2 trillion being lost by Dobbs Ockheim. And on May 13, 1664, Mr. Brin was censured in the House for, quote, altering the draft of a bill relating to public houses, unquote. Oh, that's horrible. So the English people were robbed by all their gold, silver, and bullion, and nobody raises a stink. It's just like our Jew-controlled press making a big deal about, well, whenever uh, Bill Clinton was getting bad press because of his sexual escapades, They started a war as a diversion. But there is more to be said on this subject as we proceed. The immediate effect of the export of coin measure was to increase at a single bound the export of silver coin from England to the Orient from 40,000 pounds or 50,000 pounds to 400,000 pounds or 500,000 pounds per annum. So I guess uh, zeros... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Word carefully noted. Polexfin says 40,000 pounds increased to 600,000 pounds. Its further effects, the scarcity of coin in England, the clipping of the hammered coin, and the great recoinage of 1696 are eloquently set forth by Macaulay, who, however, has entirely overlooked the source of all this mischief. Oh, no, what's the Congress? Doesn't the Congress represent the will of the people? While the Act confined the exportation permit 
to foreign coin and bullion, it practically also permitted the exportation of English coin. All that was necessary was to melt the latter into bullion, which thus, it was argued, became foreign bullion, for it had originally come from Spanish America. In fact, and apart from this subterfuge, there are practically no means to distinguish the nationality or origin of an ingot of gold or silver metal, unless, of course, it's got some stamp on it. And if you melt it into an ingot, it no longer has a stamp on it. Okay, so under these circumstances, the best of the foreign and English silver coins, the broad pieces of Spain and the milled coins of England, were melted down and shipped to India by Sir Josiah Child and his patriotic associates. I think he's being uh, sarcastic here. And their exchange for their own private benefit for gold bullion at a 9 or 10 to 1 ratio. Second, the next step of the company was to obtain control of the royal prerogative of coinage and erect a mint of their own. Okay, so again, this is exactly what happened with the Federal Reserve, where they got the right to issue the money, and but they, they still buy the paper from the Treasury, and you know, let's say one penny for a thousand dollar bill, so they make $999.99 profit on that piece of paper because they will spend it into circulation at face, face value. By these means, they would become the exchangers and coiners, not merely of the bullion which passed through Madras and the ports which had been opened to them, but through all the ports of India. At the same time, it was not desirable to quite destroy the royal prerogative for fear that distant enough unlawful mints like that of John Hall in Boston, Massachusetts, might cease to confine their issues to local coins and to extend them to others destined for the profitable trade of India. Okay, so John Hall of America was creating his own bullion and his own minted coins. To prevent this calamity, the royal prerogative was kept nominally alive, while so far as the East India Company and the moneyed classes were concerned, not a vestige of it was permitted to remain. Okay, and here's a footnote regarding John Hall here. The Massachusetts pine tree shillings were struck during the 30 years, 1651 to 81. They contained 60 grains of silver, 0.925 fine. Snelling says the senior ridge well, was 5%. Hutchins says 6.5%. Well, it may have changed in value over the years. Okay? So here are the intrigues of the banksters. They're money changers. Don't you know? Where's my cat and nine tails? Where's my cat and nine tails? I got some whipping to do. Chapter 7, Surrender of the Coinage Prerogative. This brings us to the coinage legislature of 1666 and 67. Some 20 years after the company had obtained from Elizabeth the privilege to export 30,000 pounds a year in portculous coins, Mr. Francis Day, one of the company's agents, purchased a concession from the Raja of Madras to strike three Swami or Lakshmi pagodas of gold at their factory and fort of St. George. Lakshmi was the wife of Yeshna or Vishnu. 
She was the mother of gods, the Indian Maya, Ceres, or Venus, the personification of maternity, abundance, and increase. I bet she was also a whore. The Hindu Raja who permitted the English merchants to strike these coins was, no doubt, persuaded that they would be better or more economically and numerously fabricated than with the rude appliances of the native minters. And that, therefore, the venerated image which they bore would be circulated far and wide. Okay? That's like uh, buying Manhattan for, for trinkets. What the accommodating English merchants really designed was that they should go into the melting pots of Europe. And this design was fully carried out. In 1661, Charles II obtained as part of the dowry of Catherine Braganza, sister of Alfonso VI, king of Portugal, the island and city of Bombay. Okay, they can buy cities, they can buy countries. Which down to that year had belonged to the crown of Portugal. In 1665, Articles of January 14th, it was taken possession of by the British crown, simply by shenanigans with money. On March 27, 1668, it was sold by Charles to the East India Company. So, the island and city of Bombay was totally owned by the Jewish East India Company together with all political powers necessary to its maintenance and defense, with the exception of the factory and fort of St. George at Madras. This was the beginning of the territorial possessions of the East India Company. Wow. Wow. And all they needed was to just exchange money from one port to another. It thus acquired the elements of a state, land, a people, certain political powers, and an army and navy. But one thing more was needed to complete its sovereignty, the power to coin, to evaluate by denominations, and to circulate money. Okay, that still supposedly was the prerogative of government. But if they own uh, Bombay, they are the government. This had been the object of the act under consideration, which was put upon its passage shortly after Bombay was acquired by the crown and when the company fully expected to obtain that place from the complacent Charles. Or maybe it's pronounced complacence. Any open attempt to wrest the coinage power from the crown of England would have met with the resistance of a nation always jealous of its political rights. So they had to use subterfuge. No Englishman would have listened to the proposal for a moment. But openness was not the company's mode of procedure. Rather, was it, was it subterfuge and bribery? How about how about blackmail? At it first secured the influence of the speaker and euphemistically entitled the bill, which under his auspices was introduced to the House of Commons, an act for the encouragement of coinage. In the speech to the king made by the speaker, this pliant official referred to the scarcity of coin, which, as compared with the period preceding the Commonwealth, had made itself generally apparent by saying that, quote, We find your majesty's mint not so well employed as formerly, and the reason is because the fees and wages of the officers and workmen is in part paid out of the bullion that is brought to be coined, and what is wanting is made up by your majesty. However, if you're paying 
the employees of the government in this, don't they spend it back into circulation? Do they hoard it? Do people generally hoard their wages when they need to buy stuff? We have, therefore, for the ease of your majesty and those that bring in any plate or bullion to be coined there, made another provision by an imposition upon wines, brandy, and cider imported from any foreign nations. So, okay, so maybe the government can tax wine and brandy. The argument to the king was, in plain language, as follows, quote, As compared with the Elizabethan era, there is a scarcity of coin in the kingdom. This is probably due at bottom to the amelioration by the Spanish crown in 1608 of the previously heavy seigniorage levied upon the coinage of silver in Spanish America, and by a similar amelioration of the United Provinces of the Netherlands. It is due immediately to the unwillingness of our minister or mintners to employ the new mill and screw process by which so recently as four years ago, a mintner in a given interval could strike 20 or more times as much money as now. But as our London merchants in their wisdom choose to attribute the scarcity of coin to the very moderate seniorage levied by your majesty, and especially to that surcharge of two pence in the pound tail of silver imposed for the benefit of your mistress, Barbara Villiers, which has occasioned great scandal and dissatisfaction, we propose to remedy the matter by taxing ourselves. You're always loyal commoners in paying a duty upon all future importations of spirits, wines, beer, cider, and vinegar, and by abolishing... Abolishing what? Abolishing the seniorage altogether. In other words, the Jew banksters had obtained a total monopoly on the issuance of the currency, which is what the Federal Reserve Bank has. As the existing seniorage, grievous as it appears to our London merchants, especially to the East India Company, does not in fact pay the expenses of your majesty's mint, this duty upon spirits, etc., will ease your majesty of the deficit which now you are obliged to make good, and at the same time, as you will observe in section 12, it will provide a sure annuity of 600 pounds a year, which your majesty will be enabled to settle upon Barbara in place of that precarious one hitherto afforded by her, her by the comparative inactivity of the mint. Thus all parties will be gratified, and we, your loyal commoners, are the only losers. The scarcity of coin will be remedied, bullion in vast quantities will flow into the mint, and the merchants will rejoice. The phrase, free coinage, will tickle the ears of a people yearning for freedom of any sort. The duties on liquors will please the already established publicans and brewers. Your Majesty will be relieved of expenses, and Barbara will not only be provided for, but what is perhaps still more desirable, now that you have other beauties in view, <laughs> it will place her annuity entirely in Your Majesty's power, which now is a public charge and cannot be withdrawn or withheld without the open and discreditable repudiation of a royal grant. Well, the king promised her, <laughs> right, all this money. And the taxpayer ultimately had to pay the price. Upon our shoulders alone will the extra burden fall. We shall bear it willingly both as a proof of our profound attachment to your majesty's person and because it complies with the desire of that noble and unselfish body of London merchants 
goldsmiths and dealers in money whose prosperity is ever synonymous with that of the kingdom. And this, of course, is tongue-in-cheek. Through the united influence of the various parties who expected to profit by this measure, and aided by the bribes of the East India Company, this iniquitous and mischievous bill was got through Parliament and obtained the royal assent. Okay? It's always good to have a fool as a king if you're a bankster. It swept away not only the seniorage of the crown, but also its control over the issuance of money, because it left this to the volition and the pleasure of those who choose to bring metal to the mint to be coined. And these were practically the East India Company and the goldsmith class with which it cooperated and with it influenced. By a rule of the coinage which was afterwards made, refusing any but large deposits of bullion, the limit is now 10,000 pounds, the general public was virtually shut out from the mint, which was thus fully subjected to the control of the intriguants. Judging from the remarks of the speaker quoted above as of the date of January 1666, or sorry, 1667, <coughs> the Act 18, Charles II, C5, was retroactive. For in Clause 1, it is made to operate from December 20, 1666, for five years, <coughs> and until the end of the first session of Parliament, then next following and no longer. It was really passed in January or February of 1667, probably the latter, and with certain unessential modifications, <coughs> which we call riders, was kept in force by 25 Charles II C8, and by subsequent enactments down to 9 George III C25, year 1768, when it was made perpetual. Okay, so George III, what do you think he was? Another stooge of the Jew banksters. By a subsequent enactment, 38 George III C59, year 1798, the gratuitous and unlimited coinage of silver at the request of private individuals was restricted. By 56 George III C68, year 1816, it was suspended, and in 1870 it was abolished altogether but it has been continued as to gold down to the present time. The Act of 1666 entirely failed to realize any of the expectations that were held out in its title or preamble. Now, it wasn't the Federal Reserve bill sold to the American people as a bill that would stop all crashes, economic crashes, and prevent bus booms and busts, prevent boom and bust periods, and level the economy and, and have fair and equal trade. That's how it was sold to the American people. The same thing happened here with the banks, banksters of London, England. Exact same thing, folks. It did not increase the coin of the kingdom, but on the contrary, diminished it. It did not ease the king, but on the contrary, robbed the state of its prerogative of coinage and the profits it would have made by the Indian exchange. It did not promote the trade and commerce of the kingdom, but only that of the East India Company. It did not even answer the expectations of Barbara Villiers, through whose influence, more than any other, it owed its success in the Lords. 
How many lords did she have to sleep with to get this passed? For she was soon after supplanted in the king's affections by the Duchess of Richmond, and she, Barbara, thrown aside as a broken toy, as all prostitutes are, if they're not killed in the, in the act of or line of duty. To everybody but the East India Company, the bill was deceptive and injurious. It was engendered by the avidity spawned in corruption and has worked nothing but mischief down to the present moment. In the House of Lords, February 22, 1670, Lord Lucas declared that this bill had promoted a further scarcity of money. Sir Dudley North was even more emphatic. He was infinitely scandalized at the folly of this law, which made bullion and coin money par, so that any man might gain by melting, as when the price of bullion riseth, a crown, five shillings, shall melt into five shillings and sixpence. But on the other side, nothing could even be lost by coining. For upon a glut of bullion, he might get, get that way too, and upon a scarcity, melt again. And no kind of advantage by increase of money, as was pretended, like to come out of it. Okay, so the money changers, folks. The money changers are always the most evil class of people in any country, and they're almost always Jews. They're almost always Jews. <laughs> Let there be money. Let there be money. But if you give the power to coin money to the Jews, they will only issue it for their own benefit and not for the benefit of the realm or the people. Folks, what else do you need to know? I can't recommend this book highly enough for the history of money and how the banksters created the Bank of England and through the intrigues and the use of prostitutes, Barbara Villiers in particular, to blackmail the House of Lords. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. Talk to you all later. Bye-bye. Free people will never remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis... Government is not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem. Praise Yahweh and pass the ammunition. The Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James.